Hello and welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and this week we're adopting a scorched earth policy. Our guest is Brian Evanson, author of Too Many Short Nightmares to Count. His newest collection, The Glassy Burning Floor of Hell, seems painfully apt in a summer when the world is on fire. These stories transport the reader to strange, deformed, blasted landscapes. Maybe other worlds, maybe a preview of our own world to come. They are harsh and dark and frightening, but as you'll hear me say to Brian, they're also a surprising amount of fun. As well as the end of all things, there are also cults, flying cities, terrifying feathered men, and a murderous leg. Brian and I talk about world building, religion in horror, his attitude to the human race, plenty of deep stuff, leavened slightly by radioactive colour-changing cats and a five-minute aside of putting the boot into Jeff Bezos. And it's all punctuated with the homely sound of Brian's endlessly creaky chair. So come with me to a dome city somewhere in the smog-choked future. Make every breath count. Let's talk scared. Hi, Brian, and welcome to Talking Scared. Thank you. Good to be here. Well, standard establishing questions, I suppose. How are you and where are you speaking to us from? Uh, I'm very good. I'm surviving the pandemic um, and I'm speaking from my office. I'm up at uh, CalArts, which is a, a university here in Southern California. So you're still you're teaching at a university. Is that is that still your kind of nine to five? Yes. Yeah, that's that's my job. I imagine that's been great fun in the uh, in the last sort of eighteen months. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know if I'd call it great fun exactly, but it's it's uh, yeah, it's definitely had all sorts of challenges and things that you know I I have been surprised about. Um, it's not my favorite thing to do by any means. No, I have a lot of friends who are still working or toiling. I suppose is the better word these days in in uh, in academia mm-hmm. in virtual virtual classrooms and things, and it. It just sounds like my my worst nightmare. This one hour a week um, interviewing an author via digital means is about <laughs> as, as much as I can do of a virtual conversation right. before I, my brain starts to melt. Um, anyway, but well, you mentioned the pandemic. I imagine that that's going to come up more than normal in this conversation because of the nature of the yeah, book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, to start us off, I'll, I'll introduce it. I mean, there's been a lot of excitement about you coming on this show. I, I knew that you were a well-respected writer, but the response to my announcing your imminent presence has been probably the biggest and, and most fervent so far. You've got quite the fan base out there. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. I wish the fans would uh, let me know more often. Well, yeah, well, there you go. I'm sure well, you're not on social media, are you? I believe you're, you're kind of free of all that. Uh, I'm on Facebook, but I'm not on Twitter. I've kind of avoided that just because it's it's uh, my my publisher keeps on trying to get me to go on Twitter, but so far I've resisted. If you've avoided this far, now is probably not the time to join. Do you know what I mean? It's, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Well, but yeah, well, no pressure on you. Obviously, the, the fan base is there for you. Quite a bit of pressure on me because I'm not as versed in your work as many of my listeners will be. Um, mm. Full admission, your newest collection is actually the first of your fiction that I've read, though I have just bought a copy of Last Days. Oh, good. You're here today to talk in the majority about your your new collection, which is called The Glassy Burning Floor of Hell. It's got a rank amongst the best titles of the year. Thank you. Uh, I was kind of going into it expecting to be intimidated, and I found it wholly enjoyable and surprisingly Mm -hmm. easy to devour. Uh, so I think, well, I think people are going to love it. It's out August 19th from, from Coffee House Press. So let's start with The Glassy Burning Floors of Hell. Okay. It's always tricky to interview someone about a short story collection as opposed to a right. novel because there's so many ideas or entry points. And, and one of the ways that I found kind of makes an easier entry point is to ask you, what connects these stories? Is there any unifying theme, whether it's obvious on the page or just something at the back of your head? Uh, you know, I, I think that it's not so much that there's an overarching theme for all the stories as that there's a um, there, there's there's ways in which the stories connect to one another. So there's several kind of themes that go through it and that kind of interact and 
and and connect stories in different ways. So so one, there's a kind of post-human thing going on and uh, thinking about ecological horror uh, on the one hand. There's a, a psychological horror aspect as well that's going on. And I think sometimes those two things cross. Um, and then also, I mean, some of the stories are have a foot in, in science fiction as well as in horror. And so it's it's those kind of three prongs that kind of interlace and cross and hopefully give the, the book more of a sense of being a collection rather than just a bunch of stories thrown together. And then in addition, I mean, you probably noticed that the first story is very much connected to the last story. And, and so there is this kind of arc from the beginning to the end. Well, completely, yeah. And, and I, I'm still trying to work out exactly what that connection is. <laughs> I, I can't work out whether I'm just too dumb to understand something relatively simple or whether mm-hmm. it is something that requires rereading and, and kind of peeling back like an onion. It, it's, it's a subtle relation. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty yeah. subtle. And, and so, no, you're not too dumb. Uh, and, and it's partly just this, um, I, I think that a lot of the stories in the collection are talking to one another. So, so you'll see a kind of theme or idea in one story that reappears in a different way in another story that starts to comment on it. Um, but, but I try to do that as, as I think you mentioned at the beginning in a way that um, lets the stories kind of, um, you know, they're, they're not overly ornate and, and it, it, I want it to be a readable collection, something that you can kind of take in the stories on first glance, but hopefully something that if you reread the stories, um, they'll continue to grow and continue to develop for you. Well, I think grow is very much, much the word. I mean, as I've already said, I had these expectations of your fictions because, um, well, your name just keeps coming up. I I ask authors, and I, and I will ask you, um, to recommend other books to read, and your mm-hmm. your name just keeps coming up as as one of these one of these these names that people who really know their horror and really um, have have a, have a grounding in this stuff that they they love it. Jeremy Robert Johnson, who wrote The Loop for instance, yeah. spoke yeah. about your collection, A Collapse of Horses, and said that it basically realigned his brain. Um, mm. So I went into it expecting, to be honest, kind of difficult, elliptical, ambiguous, cerebral stories that were mm-hmm. perhaps more style than entertainment. And what they actually are is difficult, elliptical, ambiguous, cerebral stories that could also have been, in the main, in any of the great sci-fi horror magazines of, of the fifties, <laughs> mm-hmm. so as a novice, to me, to tell me, is this a more accessible collection for you, or is it quite representative of your style? You know, I, I think it's pretty representative of my my late style, if you want to call it that. So, I, I think my first book is more severe and and very very elliptical. That this is Altman's Altman's tongue, yeah. Um, yeah, so so that one I think is is quite cut down and severe and elliptical. And then I think as I've kind of developed, I, I've the books have become a little fuller. The stories have become a little kind of more generous in, in terms of how they work. Um, but yeah, I, I think at this point um, the stories are pretty similar to the stories that are in my previous book, Song for the Unraveling of the World, or even in the book before that, A Collapse of Horses. And what's driving that change? Do you think what what's driven you from this? terse way of working to something that is so much more accessible i I feel like i um had kind of hit the limits with what i could do with that particular mode that early mode and and uh so so this is a way of kind of starting to explore and move into other spaces so i I feel like each book that i write is trying to answer questions that the books before raised and didn't quite know how to answer for me there's a kind of movement of curiosity that moves me forward and part of it, I, I think, as well, is just I like uh, being able to read and understand stories. And, and I, I think that there is something to be said for giving readers something that they can take in um, without you know, intense difficulty, but that continues to, to be intense for them. So, so I think that's the thing is I, I felt like in those early stories, I, I had to be very severe and, and that would do a particular thing. And now I think I figure out a mode where I can write a story that works on multiple levels and and that you can read it in a very straightforward way but that as you go back to it 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 may start to open up in different ways well i suppose there's a kind of flip side to that because there are there are even though these stories are very very diverse i Mm -hmm. kind of discerned 
a there's sort of two approaches to storytelling. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So first of all, there's certain stories like um, Leg, which which opens the collection, oh, yeah. um, which, which is about a, a an artificial leg, which may be something more than just an artificial leg. <laughs> it's it's a great like whimsical little idea. And then there's like I, I may be pronouncing this incorrectly, but Grow or Grower in the Snow. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a story called the Barrow Men, which is terrifying, and I, I honestly don't really know why. Or you know, mm-hmm. um, and, and in, in those stories, you present us with some quite startling imagery that is yeah. that is almost, but not quite, devoid of context. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, there there is there is a kind of you know, I, I came out of minimalist fiction, and I think that there's a, still a a strong aspect of that in my work in terms of just, you know, the, the worlds that are created in a lot of those stories are worlds that are being created on the run. And so you are kind of figuring out what's going on often at the same time as the characters are. Um, and, and you're only given enough, you know, hopefully, you know, it, it, I'm giving you just enough to go on with it, but not too much. So when you're writing a story like that, is it built from a particular striking image? or a singular idea. Mm-hmm. Are there times that all a story needs is an image that will have an impact, whether it's fear or whatever? Yeah. Well, I mean, you can, for a very short story, you can get a long way with a striking image. Um, but, you know, those stories all have come from different spaces. I mean, I think Leg, I was teaching a class on fairy tales and was reading a lot of fairy tales, both the ones that people know, and then also kind of revisionary fairy tales and, and then there's this this uh, book of rediscovered fairy tales called The Turnip Princess, um, really interesting book of, of of these these fairy tales that were discovered in an, in an archive in Germany, um, in which they haven't really been processed, so they're quite crazy. The stories are, and so all those things were kind of in my head, and I think it was it was I was in this kind of generic space, and that story I used that as as a way of kind of formulating that story almost as a sort of fable. Um, but it, it brings in kind of aspects of um, story that, that most fables wouldn't have in it. I mean, it's kind of a science fictional story. It has something very, very strange going on. And, and you know, it's kind of turning a few things on their head. So, so that kind of started with that. And it started with, um, you know, just this absurd idea, which you mentioned, which is that there's this leg that seems to be kind of a sentient being of some sort. Um, and others started in different ways. The Barrow Men started um, uh, with just that I, I don't know, I had this, this notion of this thing called a Barrow Man. And uh, that was something that just the word kind of stuck in my head. And I started just playing with that to see what it would be. And eventually it developed into the story that's there. So, and, you know, I think as you read that story, you can kind of, you can figure out what's going on. But you don't know exactly what the world is. You don't know exactly what the barrel men are. You know some of their characteristics. You know that they seem to be in, in a sort of conflict or, or in a superior relationship with what they call true men. Um, and, uh, you know, so, and then I just I kind of see where it's going to go. So with a story like that, I, I don't have a plan when I'm writing it. Um, and I have lots of stories that I end up abandoning because they just, they don't go anywhere, but that one eventually kind of moved around in a way that I like. So, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a little bit um, intuitive in terms of how they start. And sometimes there is a very kind of distinctive image. Sometimes there's a word, um, you know, jussle actually started just with the word jussle, which is a verb I hadn't heard before. And uh, I ran across it reading a poet and, and that just, for whatever reason, generated the story for me. Because mm, I wonder if it's a matter of confidence. Because when I come to write my short fiction, um, mm-hmm. if I don't have what feels to me like a fully fleshed out, understandable, coherent story, I don't have the confidence to start. I've said this with a few other people who I've spoken to, and it tends to be short fiction writers rather than novelists, because a novel can't, yeah. usually can't bear ambiguity for the full length of its of its page length, whereas a short story can. Yeah. I'm always astounded and kind of awestruck by people who can take a absurd or incoherent or whatever image and just mm-hmm. paint something with it and then then leave yeah. it there for you to read and, and make of it what you will. Because I don't I don't have the confidence to do that. 
you know? Right. Go, I, I was just going to say it's something that works better for the short form for sure. I mean, it is something people are willing to tolerate in shorter doses, but like a, a an abstract um, shape or feel for a novel is just something that that's, you, you know, you really have very few people who are willing to go along with it. Mm, yeah. I said there were two strands to storytelling. So we, we've mm-hmm. got this, the, these very short, um, sharp tales, which are all built around an image or an idea. And at the same time, there are these stories that offer these intricate worlds, which are sparsely fleshed out, but also entire. Um, and I'm thinking in particular of, of two stories, which really, really spoke to me. Well, three, because there's Jussel, which you mentioned. Um, the other ones are A Shimmering Wall, and mm-hmm. I may have pronounced this incorrectly, Elo Havel. Elo Havel. Elo Havel. These are like 12 page stories with these systems and societies with with rules and, and even their own legends and their own lore. And you, you introduce yeah. it all in just a few pages. And and Elo Havel is my favorite story in this collection for the record. Oh, I, I, thought, it was, I mm-hmm. thought it was beautiful. Um, mm. But what do you think or what do you know is the secret to good world building in short fiction? Well, um, you know. My, my friend M.T. Anderson, um, who writes novels, always gets a little frustrated with me because he feels like I, I put together a story and then I have a kind of world that's kind of built into that story. And then after a few pages, I'm just done with it and go on to another world. And and I think a novelist, I mean, tends to kind of build the world up in a very large way and, and keep on kind of building the parts up. But I think I think for me, it's it's so much I think can be done by implication. And so I need to know particular details about the world for the world to function and need to make particular decisions. But, but those are decisions that, you know, are, can be kind of made as I'm, as I'm writing in, in some respects. And so I feel like for me, the process of, of building a world is, is as much about discovery as it is about having something that I'm starting with in advance. And, and one of the joys for me of, of, of writing a story is figuring out the world as I'm, as I'm kind of building it, understanding or discovering things about it as I go. So, and, and, you know, the thing you were saying before, it's like, I, if I know kind of where a story's going um, pretty, too much, then I, I usually don't want to write it um, just because it's like, it's not satisfying to me in a way that having just enough knowledge of where the story is going to push me forward um, is it can be very exciting and can can you know lead me into a space I don't expect but if I know the space I'm going to and can kind of predict it too far in advance or before say I'm halfway through the story um, then often I'll abandon that story just because it's not as fun to write okay so you're telling it to yourself as you go along then yeah yeah and that you know that takes some revision a lot of my process is revision and, and working things out but but it really is as much as anything kind of just in, intuitive as I'm writing it and kind of making these decisions and making these choices. And, and I think my mind at this point is trained well enough to just be capable of doing that. Well, that is very impressive, though, because as I say, the, these worlds you present, they are, I keep probably overusing this word in this conversation, but they are coherent. They, they do cohere. Yeah. And they are, yeah, yeah. you know, they, they, they make sense. And, and you often often your stories will be based around one particular tradition or rule or system in place in this world. So for example, mm-hmm. in the shimmering wall, there is a sense of two worlds, dimensions, spaces coexisting separated by this wall, that there are certain uh, behaviors that are prohibited by this wall. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in Elo Havel, my favorite, it's, it's all about, um, I suppose, end of life, yeah, traditions, and it reminded me weirdly that of you know, have you seen Midsummer, the horror film? Yes, I have. You, you know the I can't remember the name for it, but the the um, the Swedish tradition where the the people throw themselves to death off the off the cliff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It kind of yeah. put that was the first thing that jumped into my head. Um, uh-huh. Interesting. So the these stories are based around often one facet of the society, but they, they give the sense you, you take from that facet a whole lot more. Um, mm-hmm. And I wonder, are, are you setting these stories in, are they fantastical worlds? Is it, is it our world in a, in a future mm-hmm. scenario or, or does it not matter? Um, I, yes and no. It, I, I mean, sometimes they are very deliberately our world. I mean, I feel like there are stories that you can identify as, as being in our world. Others, I think, um, 
you can identify as being not our world. Uh, and then there's others that I just don't think you can necessarily decide for sure. Um, so, so it's, it's, yeah. So I, I think it's, that that's something I, I play with. And there are moments when I really rely on, you know, aspects of our own world. I think like the title story, there's, there's a lot of the, the details of that, um, that are non-fantastical, just make it seem like it's a world that's very much like our own, if not our own. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. And, and so, so, and this is, I, I think one of the things about writing is, is there's a, there's a critic named Lubomir Dolezal. Um, who talks about, um, you know, what we do kind of is, is we have these, this set of encyclopedias as readers um, that we carry around in our heads. And anytime something's not filled in uh, within a story, um, we use that encyclopedia to fill it in. So we have all this kind of received knowledge and received information that we carry around and plug in. And it's only when we're told that we're filling in that information wrong um, that we, we, uh, you know, kind of start to see the world. And so I think the choice for, for me is there's a lot of openness in terms of the details I ask readers to bring to the story in terms of what you can fill out. Um, a lot of the descriptions fairly minimal. Um, but I try to be very clear about the things that are, that are different from, from what they might be thinking that, you know, what, what they might be thinking the, the world is. Well, I suppose whether or not, it is our world or a, a, a different world. A lot of these worlds are in a state of decline or collapse or, or post-collapse. Almost. Yes. Um, yeah. And when I asked you at the start about a connective theme, you, you mentioned post-humanity, which is, is interesting and we can come back to. But the thing that is really stark and foremost is is kind of ecological nightmare, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Either either approaching or the aftermath of. Now, I'm asking, I suppose, what is a, a bit of an obvious question, but it, it's a conversation <laughs> starter. Is climate change something that's firmly on your mind these days? Yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, I think it's hard for it not to be at this stage. Um, and it's yeah. something, you know, that's been on my mind for a long time. I'm, I'm, I'm old enough to remember... Um, uh, the gas lines in the 1970s here in the United States where, you know, there were gas shortages and people lined up at the pumps and a lot of panic. And there was a sense of the world as, as, as changing and, and, you know, a sense that we needed to do something to, to kind of save things. And then, you know, 1980 rolled around and Ronald Reagan was, was elected and, and everyone just like forgot. And I feel like as a kid kind of growing up with this sense of, you know, imminent collapse um, I've just spent the last, um, you know, three decades just kind of waiting for it to come back and waiting, you know, for, for it to be something that, that people kind of acknowledge again. And, and so, so uh, yeah, it's, it's been on my mind for a while, but it, it feels especially acute right now. Um, I mean, this collection obviously has uh, stories that kind of fit in that space of, of ecological horror or collapse or, or whatever you want to call it. And, and for me, they're kind of one of the, you know, that's kind of the core of the collection in a way. And in fact, my next collection, which is about half done, um, probably has even more that are moving in that direction. Well, I mean, it was a frightening book to read at the moment. Mm-hmm. It's odd when, when you do this show, because every time I speak to an author, I realize things that I think about a book that I didn't realize whilst I was reading the book, if that makes sense. It get things yeah, absolutely. become. Um, and I start seeing patterns and, and there's certain certain patterns emerging at the minute. Like, so for example, in horror, one of the patterns that is definitely there is this kind of retro love for eighties paperback, you know, big epic paperback novels. The other thing that I think is, is undeniable is that ecological horror is creeping into horror to the very forefront of horror, even in books, which are not nominally about that. Um, But your book is is very about that a lot of these stories mm-hmm. are really emphatically about it and, and reading it at the moment when you've got you know we've had the hottest summer on record in the uk you've got the heat yeah. dome over in the states you've yeah. got flooding all over europe you know what happened in germany if, last week mm-hmm. it, it, it's it sounds really ignorant i suppose but it's like it's as if i who was intellectually aware of the crisis that is looming has, has woken up and become emotionally aware of this crisis. It's like, something yeah. like, like shit, this is here now. Yeah, yeah, when yeah. you read your book, it's like, oh God, it's like, it's like little potted nightmares 
that mm-hmm. are just ripped <laughs> from the news. You know, um, I mean, I was thinking an alternative title for this collection could easily be Domed Cities. Because uh-huh. so many yeah. of your humans are just living <laughs> in these these little bubbles of, of like right. struggling to survive. I suppose, like, so many of these tales are sat in the, set in the aftermath of human ecological irresponsibility. So there's a story called Curator, for example, in which we are yeah. shown the very final moments of earthbound humanity as this toxic mm-hmm. cloud draws nearer and it's scouring the earth. Yeah. And un- unlike a lot of pre-apocalyptic stories, um, so in the movie Interstellar, for example, it's all about giving humanity a chance to survive, flying mm-hmm. off, you know, looking for a new start. Whereas right. your protagonist, it's all about the fact that she doesn't believe we are deserving of a second chance. And, and that yeah. comes up more more in this collection. So so tell me, Brian, in, in brief, are you a misanthrope? Do you think we are a plague? <laughs> You know, um, well, so so I'd say a few things about that. One is that yes, I probably am a misanthrope. Um, I'm I'm weirdly optimistic as as just kind of in my day to day life, but I, I think that a lot of my um, fear gets kind of cycled into my my fiction. Um, I I mean, you know, I I think if you just if you think logically about what humans have have done and how they've approached the you know their their time on Earth. Um, you you begin to realize that probably it would be better for every other species except for maybe pigeons and cockroaches if humans were gone. Um, you know, it, it's just we we've done a lot of damage. We we've, we've destroyed a lot of species. We seem to be kind of set on continuing with that. It, it's it's hard for me to kind of say, well, we deserve one more chance. Uh, on the other hand, I'm I'm human. I don't particularly want to die out. And so, um, you know, it would be great if humans could survive, but it would also be nice if we could survive in a way that would, would begin to minimize um, the damage we're doing, not only to the world, but also to, the, to, to our ancestors, to the people who are likely to come after us. So in the Incurator, humanity blasts off to the stars, seek a fresh star. And then in, there's another story called To Breed the Air, in which we have this two-tier society of those who live above and below and, and literally breathe different air. Yeah. And it's interesting that you say about, you know, what we're going to leave for our future generations and things, because it, it feels like a lot of your climate related or ecological related horror stories are as much about the horrific implications of entitlement and inequality yeah. as much as they yeah. are about natural conditions. Yeah, I think that's that's completely right. And and uh, that's something that a lot of my fiction circles around, but especially in regard to climate, I think that's something I keep returning to, that um, there there is a kind of blindness, there's a kind of um, entitlement um, that has made people make, make terrible choices. But I think, yeah, kind of through my fiction throughout, that, that notion of choice and responsibility um, is something that that is kind of from the very beginning of my work. It's something that's there. Um, partly, I think you know, I'm, I'm an excommunicated woman, and and I grew up in that culture, and there was a huge kind of responsibility on on or a huge kind of en- emphasis, excuse me, on responsibility and, and choice, and and being being uh, you know accountable for your actions. Uh, even though so many Mormons at this point are you know pro Trump and don't seem to be all that accountable for their actions, but but that at least seems to be something in the doctrine of that religion. Okay, I mean, with all that said, and with that in mind, what 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 do you make of Bezos and Branson and the rest whizzing off into space on their ego rockets? <laughs> uh, you know, it's it's weird because on the one hand, it's it's exciting. It's hard for it not to be exciting to think that there's a possibility of space travel um that could be you know uh, available at least someday i don't think it's likely to be available at an affordable price to me in my lifetime on the other hand it's like for this kind of incredibly brief flight you're expending an enormous amount of fuel an enormous amount of resources and it is all about the ego of the person doing it and especially with bezos and and amazon i mean you, you when you think about just the degree to which um He's hamstrung the workers of his own company um, so that he can get, you know, extra millions of dollars. Um, it's just, I, I feel like it's pretty disgusting. 
Yeah, my wife is a space nut. She's obsessed by the sort of 60s space race. She knows all about it. Uh-huh. And um, and she's appalled by it. And, and I kind of follow her lead on the topic because she's the expert. And I, and I was thinking the day that NASA have said they're going to go back to the moon. And if uh-huh. that happens, you know, in the next 10 years, I will sit there on the couch, like watching it wrapped to attention. I know there's all issues, you know, going back all the way to like white is on the moon and all that kind of stuff. Um uh-huh. But I'll watch it and it will feel awesome. But there's something about one man just yeah. using his billions to to get his own ego into orbit that I just find yeah. perverse, you know? Yeah, absolutely. It spoke to me. There's something about that and the tone of that and the discourse around it that just feels like it's borrowed from your collection. Because, it's, again, it's that entitlement and the sense of a lot of these stories feel like there is a, a kind of corporate horror that has at least predated the story in some way um yeah and it just felt it 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 felt like either the headlines are ripped from your stories or your stories are 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 you know preempting the headlines so i (laughs) i I had to ask you about bezos (laughs) yeah 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 i I have another story which is called solution which is uh you can get it for free at tor.com and and that's very much about one of the parts of that story is about the rich trying to leave the planet and you know the, the idea being that you know if you have enough money you can leave and then otherwise you're kind of going to be stuck there and uh uh you know i i do think that that's something that is you know the the, the level of privilege of bezos and, and and branson in terms of you know doing these space flights and then you know being so self-congratulatory about it is 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 really appalling it sort of feels like we are reaching to meet science fiction. It kind of feels like we. this is our version of Ming the Merciless. You know what I mean? Right. Like, these people <laughs> yeah. would be the villains in a science fiction story if it was told from the alien's perspective. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. Yeah. And it is. I mean, I think there there is this, this notion that, all right, what are we going to do? How are we going to kind of keep the world going? And one is, well, we're just going to have to eventually leave the world. Um, but I, I, you know, my strong suspicion is if that happens, the people who leave the world, there's going to be almost a eugenic selection, uh, or, you know, selection based on, on privilege and wealth and class that's going to go on. Um, and, and the rest of us are going to be left here. Mm-hmm. So, so I just, I think that those kind of ingrained issues of, of just privilege are, are just so intensely part of our society that, um, they're they're very hard to to um, fight against, um, but it's also the thing that's been amazing to me is just how nakedly they've been expressed lately, um, both with the Trump presidency and then also you know in terms of people being willing to to just do things that obviously they shouldn't be able to get away with and doing them with impunity, and then also just the kind of shamelessness of of, of Bezos and Branson presenting themselves as these these heroes that are going into space, you know, wearing their cowboy hat when they come back. Yeah, I mean that is that is the frightening thing is the impunity because yeah. you know the world as one can kind of go, what are you fucking doing? And right. they just don't care if they even see it. You know, they just right. and that's the frightening to me because that's the thing that shows, you know, that's the thing that shows the power and and that shows the indifference. And I, I yeah, yeah, I find absolutely. that scary. So and I I think you know I mean I I like the idea of us kind of trying to explore other planets and trying to, to, you know, uh, colonize other planets even potentially. But also I think that the way that's going to happen is, is, is going to be incredibly corporatized and incredibly discriminatory. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's hard for me to get, you know, I, 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 I'm, I'm really intrigued by it, but it's also like, I can already, you know, feel the, 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 the prejudice that's likely behind those projects. Yeah, and your stories are are consumed with the earth that will be left for the rest of us. Yeah, us, that's right. <laughs> poor mere mortals. Okay, don't be alarmed. The day has come. Talking Scared has a sponsor. So this is one of those pesky interruptions where I talk about something else for a minute. But please, bear with me. Don't skip. You'll want to hear this. Yes, I'm promoting something, but I've been very, very careful to identify a partner who is relevant, bookishly minded, and not one of those evil corporate entities that Brian and I have just been calling out. Novelic is a brand new book app 
and it's designed to help you find your next favourite read. There are no reviews, no star ratings, or any of that guff that awful people can use to game the system. It's pure recommendations based on your tastes and your reading history. It's specifically fantastic for genre, with curated reading lists and recommendations from real genre fans, no impersonal algorithms. And that's not where the humanity ends. Novelic also allows you to create and join book clubs. You can make friends with readers with the same tastes, or, or even different tastes. I mean, you do you. It's a friendly space for readers and authors alike, without spoilers, without negative ratings, just lots of books and the people who love them. You can download Novelic now on Apple or Android and look out for bespoke Talking Scared features on the app in the near future. Novelic, it's another way for us to talk about horror. In Curator, which again is the story about the the, the person who is left, left to kind of curate human civilization in as the last person on earth. And, and yeah. it plays with lots of cool things that I thought was fascinating about how you create a message that could be read um, that can transcend time and context. So yeah. how can you create messages that can be understood in a millennia by potentially a whole different species? Yeah. And it sent me on a kind of dive into Wikipedia because I became, I became consumed by the idea for like the last few days. I think it's, it's really fascinating. And have you ever heard of the Human Interference Task Force? Uh, I don't think I have. Tell me about it. I think you'll find this interesting. This is kind of not how an interview should go, is it? But anyway, um, so basically there's this, this, this group of people who since the 80s have been working to come up with an idea that exactly, exactly what you've pinpointed in your story. How do you tell future generations, millennia in the future, how to, that they have to avoid, for example, nuclear waste? Mm-hmm. Um, and the ideas that people come up with are crazy. They read like more absurd than the more than the most surrealist story. Yeah. Then the absurdity starts to make sense because, for example, we can't assume people will read left to right or up or down. So therefore, right. if you do like, if you do like a comic strip to show that someone walking towards a pile and then dying, mm. that could look like resurrection if people read mm. on a different axis, you know, and stuff right. like that. And and I am trust me, prom- I promise you, I'm going to link this back to your work. Um, one of the things they came up with, the prevailing idea, is this thing called ray cats. Now, bear with me because this sounds mental. Uh-huh. This is the idea of breeding a special, a special species of cats that would literally change colour if they go near anything that's radioactive. Huh. And then basically implanting them into the eco sphere. Huh. Then that would then um, require. In, in a millennia's time, that people understand what that colour change means, which then demands that we basically come up with a, an established law, because we can't trust that facts will be passed down, but we can trust that law will be passed down. So, so people are literally coming up with a fake folklore that will embed into the culture that if, people, <laughs> if you see this cat and it changes colour, stay away. Interesting. Yeah, I... But yeah. it, again, it ties into these stories that you've written where you've you've come up with these potted folklores um, for fictitious scenarios. And basically, how how do you do that? How do you think around corners like that? Because you're doing what these guys are doing. You're, you're taking a, a potential society in the future and then thinking, OK, what would the folklore be in this completely absurd scenario? You know, I, that's that's a good question. I mean, I just, <laughs> I just, I just do it. I mean, I, I, I think you have to start with different premises. I come from a family of scientists as well, and I'm, I'm kind of the only writer in the family, and and uh, so they often kind of think through, um, you know, the complexities of, of certain things, and and I think that that kind of you know logical upbringing is probably useful for me in the, in that where I can kind of take a premise, whether it's an absurd premise or not. And then just kind of extrapolate from there, and, and just see where it will take me. Um, and then, yeah, I, I, I'm very interested. I think I said before, I, I'm, I, I've taught a fairy tale class a bunch of times. I'm interested in thinking about those myths and legends and the way in which they they kind of interact with reality or don't. And and so so I, I think it's it's just that it's kind of bringing those things together in terms of influences for things like that. 
you know, it's probably people like Gene Wolfe, um, who's, you know, one of my favorite uh, science fiction writers and, and, you know, Jack Vance's the dying earth series as well. Mm-hmm. Um, when I read that, I mean, I think just the notion that magic and science could be confused is, you know, it's just a really intriguing one, that whole kind of science fantasy thing you get also in uh, Gene Wolfe's The Book of the New Sun, where for for parts of the book, you think you're in, in the distant past or in an alternate world, and then you realize you may be in, in the far future. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, I, again, I mean, I wish I had a good answer for this, but I feel like it's just, it's partly intuitive, it's playful, and it's also just trying to kind of tap into the way in which I remember taking in stories and myths when I was when I was young especially well you mentioned two writers there that I can completely see how they tie into you as inspirations I've read Jack Vance I've I've only ever tried to read Gene Wolfe and and the book Mm -hmm. of the new son I think I was too young and I, I wanted Lord of the Rings and dragons and things and it just baffled me the other writer No, not at all. I must go back to it at some point. The other story that I just kept, just kept getting the same, I suppose, feel or atmosphere about when I was reading your work is um, Walter Miller's A Canticle for Leibowitz. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I read that when I was very young. My my parents read it and got very, very excited about it. I was probably 13 or 14. And so I remember that book just in our house and and finally, I, I picked it up and read it. And I was, you know, probably in some ways too young to read it um, in terms of understanding everything. But I really loved it, really enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. And then I, I hadn't reread it for, I don't know, maybe 30, 35 years or something. And then just a few years ago, um, I picked it up again and reread it and still got a tremendous amount of joy from it. And there's that yeah. great thing in that, obviously, about, you know, these these things from the past that are that that are misunderstood and are seen as kind of the foundation for a religion um, that just we, from our perspective, know that they're quite something different. So um, I, I love that, that kind of active misinterpretation that's kind of formative at the same time. Um, that's something I, I love kind of returning to. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's a phenomenal book. I, um, for those who don't know, it's basically about the, the apocalypse has happened and um, there is a, a I'm misremembering now. It's been a while, but there is a, a kind of religious society that lives to suppress technological knowledge mm-hmm. because yeah. they see it as the root of all evil. Uh, and in the book, obviously, you're supposed to read it and, and see knowledge and, and and freedom and all those things as as wholly good. And, and I've always been a complete staunch believer that all knowledge and all progress is good. And as, as the world continues to go to fucking rack and ruin i am starting to second guess myself on that one mm-hmm. yeah yeah it's tricky it's interesting we mentioned religion because um you you've already mentioned and you were raised in the mormon church and mm-hmm. uh you've now left the mormon church yeah. um i'm interested to ask because you're the first guest i've had f- from that from that religious background so i don't want to neglect to ask you about it you've written a few novels and, and stories that are actually you know, they explore, I, I suppose, the, the horrific potential of, of that heritage, I suppose mm-hmm. um, we mm-hmm. could say. D- did you write those stories after you left the church? Uh, most of them, yeah. Well, that's not exactly true. So I, I have a novel called Father of Lies, which is about um, abuse in a religious structure. Um, and it's not specifically Mormon, but it's it's probably fairly closely modeled after it. It was, I was... Um, uh, kind of working with with a group uh, that was kind of investigating um, ecclesiastical abuse when I was working on that novel, and uh, um, so so yeah, that was written kind of when I was you know probably heading out, but I was still a Mormon at the time. Um, it was a book that was was a little bit controversial, and then um, the Open Curtain is a novel that uh, was written after, which is very much set in Utah and very directly takes on kind of Mormon culture and Mormon faith and, and just the what happens to people who are in that culture who don't quite fit in. So were they written in anger or disillusionment? What was your what was your agenda, um, I suppose, there? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think they were written in anger. Um, I mean, something like The Open Curtain was written... Um, 
I mean, it was it was strange. I was living somewhere else. I was I'd moved from Utah long ago, and it was partly a way just to try to remember this place I'd I'd grown up in, and think about what it was like. And and that that book kind of started because I by accident discovered that um, a grandson of Brigham Young's had been accused of of murdering a woman. And that was fascinating to me because I'd never heard about that in the church. And as I kind of began to investigate that story, I started finding out stranger and stranger details, a guy named William Hooper Young. Um, and then eventually, you know, I, I ended up writing this book, which is about uh, a kid kind of discovering this who's, who's kind of damaged and, and, and the effect that that has on him and, and uh, his whole life kind of falling apart in various ways. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, I don't feel like that was written in anger at all. Um, Father of Lies probably feels a little bit more that way because it's very precisely looking at the way in which religious institutions cover up abuse. Um, uh, you know, I, I think anyone could read that as potentially an attack on religion, but I, I think it's more of an attack on corruption in religion and uh, not on religion itself. It's just the way in which, you know, there is this tendency sometimes to cover up things that we see in all sorts of religions, just not more, not, not only Mormonism. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm a kind of angry committed atheist over here. So I'm, I'm always interested to speak to people who have, um, you know, had, had roots in, in different religions. Cause I'm, I'm fascinated by the, I'm, I'm fascinated by the belief, <laughs> I suppose, cause I'm, I'm incapable yeah. of it, but anyway, we won't get into that. Um, I will ask though, this is probably ground that's been tread a lot of times for you, but my listeners may not be, fully aware of it so you leaving the church was around the same time that you also left your your position and this is back in the 90s um yeah. as a creative writer professor at brigham young university um yeah. now as i say i know it's long tilled ground for you but that was all based around some controversy around your first collection altman's tongue am i yeah. right yeah you're right i believe the flashpoint came when a student complained about the violence in the stories. Yeah. Yeah, I, I had published, um, you know, I'd, I'd interviewed for a job at Brigham Young University, which is a Mormon school. It's where I went as a student and and came back there to teach. And, you know, during the interview, they asked me a little bit about my work and asked if there was anything that they should know about it. And and I said, well, you know, I, I'm, I'm dealing with pretty difficult subject matter it's fairly dark and horrific, some of it, and also fairly violent. And the committee asked me, um, is there any sex in it? And I said, no, <laughs> there's not really any sex. And they said, oh, well, it should be fine then. And, and that kind of fit in with my kind of sense of Mormon culture more generally. It's like growing up, we, um, as Mormons, were told not to watch R-rated movies, but, but most people decided that it was okay to watch them as long as they would a quote unquote just violent um, rather than having sex in them and and so th there's there's this weird kind of you know um, prudish kind of morality that seems to kind of be be pretty um, tolerant of violence for whatever reason um, so anyway but I went ahead I published that book um, when it came out the uh, editor had kind of um, put it on the the flyleaf kind of without um, my approval uh, something that talked about my connection to the Mormon Church and and that you know caused a little bit of a stir uh, but then ultimately what happened was I, I got asked by a colleague at BYU to come to his class and and talk to the students and one of the students who was there um, just really objected to what I was doing with my work and and happened to be connected to a Mormon general authority who's one of the kind of upper hierarchy of the Mormon church and 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 kind of started the process of trying to get me um, kicked out because she felt my work was inappropriate. It's not a student I ever had or not a student I really know. Um, and uh, that was kind of the beginning. And, and, you know, eventually they asked me to, she submitted a kind of letter anonymously through this general authority and they asked me to respond to this anonymous letter. And I said, you know, it doesn't make sense to respond to an anonymous letter. And they still kind of pushed for that. And so I finally did and uh, um, wrote a long response explaining why I did, explaining why I thought it was important or, you know, I, I, I stood behind what I did and uh, uh, just didn't hear anything. And eventually got a letter from the 
from my department chair, which which essentially said, you know, if I wanted to stay at Brigham Young University, I needed to promise not to write another book like Altman's Tongue. And so I, I had thought I'd been defending this book um, and, and slowly realized they just wanted me to stop. And that was kind of the beginning of my first leaving Brigham Young University. I took a job at Oklahoma State University in Oklahoma instead, and then eventually leaving Mormonism, uh, which took me another few years. That's a terrible story. The, I mean, I would have had no more sympathy if the student had been in your class, but the fact that they yeah. weren't in the first place makes it even worse. I mean, I, 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 I struggle to get my head around that, to be honest, as a, you know, yeah. a, a university being a place supposedly of, I mean, this is a whole different conversation about universities. Right, there's, right. There's, there's arguments on both sides, left and right about that. Well, I think I'm much more on your side of this argument. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. But you know, like I just I mean I'm I'm staunchly anti censorship, but I just that yeah. that is one of the most craven things I've ever heard. Yeah. Do you think it would have happened at a different university that wasn't so tied uh, into no. the faith? No, no, I, I don't think so. I mean I think it happened because it was a Mormon university. Um and because I was, you know, Mormon as well and and, and they're you know I think that's why it happened. Um so so yeah I mean I think that a lot of people in the US were surprised it happened because it was you know my work is um fairly dark but it's not like unnaturally dark in terms of you know it fits into the kind of it's 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 not the kind of work that would be uh uh condemned at most other universities so yeah. um but you know the 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 advantage of this is that you know very early in my career um, I had to um, defend myself in a way that that re- really I, I started. I had eventually was put in a position where I had to choose between my writing and my faith, and and uh, I think that you know it, it really made me think about what was important to me and and made me you know write things that I, I felt like I could stand behind. So nothing has made me want to read a book more than the fact that um, you know it was became a, a source of controversy amongst the religious and academia yeah. that that has absolutely <laughs> sold it to me as a thing to go and read um yeah. but I, i've just bought last days um which to me seems to be a novel which is all about the conjunction of violence and religion yeah, yeah, um, yeah. it's a book that's about an amputation cult where people think that if they amputate something that will bring them closer to god It's such a nasty idea. And where did it come from? Was any of that born from your distress at what happened? Is it a satire? Because that is such a a clear and nasty idea. Where did it come from? Uh, You know, it it probably partly came from that. I mean, I think the way in which it thinks about religion is is tied to that. But, you know, I, I think it just basically came from from that to buy you know the, the the verse in the gospels if thy right hand defend thee then cut it off and and just beginning to think of this as you know considering the kinds of things that people form religions around it, it doesn't seem um too far afield to think that they might you know uh privilege that verse and and feel like the way to get near god is is kind of um by, by amputating the body. And of course, I mean, all the time people deprive themselves of, of, of the physical as a way to get closer to God. So it seems like a logical extension. Well, I am looking forward to reading it very much. It, uh, it, it sounds like just my kind of thing. Um, yeah, that's, that's my favorite of my novels. So I, I hope you enjoy it. It's the, it's the wildest of them in some ways. Excellent. Yeah, I, it, it, it has the feel, as I, say, I haven't started yet, but it's got the feel of something that there's a particular kind of audacious, extreme horror that mm-hmm. puts a smile on my face. I, I grin <laughs> at the idea of the author sitting at their computer, writing it, knowing what it's going to do to people. Something about mm-hmm. that, it, it, it makes me grin. So, I'm, yeah, and it, <laughs> it's got that it's got that feel of, of a book that will do that for me. Um, I offer my Patreon listeners the chance to suggest questions for my mm-hmm. guests. And I actually had a question about Last Days from okay. um, from Johan. Now, 
Having not read the book in question yet, I'm honestly not sure this is an in-joke or a genuine question. So forgive me if this goes the wrong way. But, but okay. Johan wants me to ask you if your use of language in last days is a reference to waiting for Godot. Um, I don't think it's deliberately a reference, but it's also true that Beckett is hugely influential to me. And, and the, the kind of like stripped down kind of back and forth of the dialogue um, the kind of weird humor that's kind of in that book, but in others of my books too, um, is probably something I, I wouldn't have gotten to without Beckett. And yeah, certainly Beckett, Beckett's been incredibly important to me, both his plays and his novels. So so I guess the answer is kind of. Okay. I can actually see Beckett in, when I think about it, in, in The Glassy Burning Floor of Hell, because there's a lot of Endgame in this. Yeah. Endgame is, is probably my favorite of this place. I can feel that 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 kind of brutal absurdity is is yeah. very much the tone of a lot of these stories. Yeah, and I, I feel like I come partly out of an absurdist tradition. I mean, I when I was very young, I I uh, kind of ran across in a, in a small used bookstore in 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 Utah um, uh, just a bunch of old Grove paperbacks um, of all those absurdist plays by Genet and Ionesco and Beckett. And, and that was incredibly um, important for me, just in terms of my development as a writer. Well, I didn't think we'd get to Samuel Beckett, to be honest, um, <laughs> but we, we got there. What I will ask before we finish um, is talk about other authors and other writers. Could you recommend a single book that you think my listeners should read and why? Uh, sure. Um... Well, I'm, I'm going to recommend a book of stories just because, you know, I, I, I prefer stories to novels personally. Um, but I think I would suggest, and I'm also going to recommend a book that came out like a year ago, um, just because I feel like there's so many interesting things going on right now for, um, uh, in terms of, of contemporary horror. Um, but there's a book published by Undertow Press called Thin Places by Kay, Kay Chronister. And uh, it's her first book, um, but it's incredibly lyrical, um, really developed stories, really nicely done. And uh, I, I, think, I think it's definitely a book to look at. Can you give me that name again? Because there was just some noise at your end. Oh, sorry about that. Um, Kay Chronister, um, K-A-Y-C-H-R-O-N-I-S-T-E-R. And the book is called Thin Places. Um, but but really kind of inventive looks at horror that have you know strong fantastical elements and and move in really interesting directions. And then if I can recommend one other book, um, there's also Christine on Muslim's book Age of Blight, um, which is a, you know she's a Filipino writer um, doing really interesting things with with horror in, in kind of very particular context, which I like. And it's especially if we're thinking in terms of kind of environmental horror, there's a few nice pieces in that. Okay. As ever, they will go in the show notes for people to check out. Um, I always like when I get recommendations that I've not had before that I've not even heard of. So yeah, thank you for those. You're welcome. And to, to finish up here, Brian, um, I've got a feeling where this may go, but let's see what, truly scares you? <laughs> um, you know, as when I was growing up, um, I was incredibly phobic. I was kind of afraid of almost everything. And, and a lot of my kind of development was, was, you know, sublimating those fears. I used to, you know, be afraid of heights. I used to be afraid of the dark, all those things. But, but for me, I mean, I guess the thing that really scares me right now is un uncertainty in some ways. Um, I, I have a, a hard time, especially thinking about the state of the world and the uncertainty of that. You've weathered the uncertainty well, if that is your, your fear. <laughs> um, and you've written a collection of stories which has left me feeling more uncertain than ever about the future That's of the good. planet. So I, I get the uncertainty out of myself and spread it along to you guys. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you, um, yeah, you spread it around and, and leave us all a bit mm. haunted. But no, it's yeah. a great collection and Christ, it's prescient. And, and thank you for writing it. And thank you for coming and talking to me. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me on. Brian Evanson, thank you for talking scared.
It's fitting that I'm editing this episode on the same day that the IPCC report tells us what we should all know already. We've screwed the place up. Somehow, astonishingly, it turns out that climate change is already even worse than we thought. And if we don't seriously revolutionise our behaviour and our societies, we're all going to be either burning, drowning, starving or dying of thirst in the next few decades. Read in that very dim and fiery light, Brian's stories in the glassy burning floor of hell become doubly frightening. Not all of these tales are about climate disaster, but our very real existential crisis does haunt the collection as a whole. These are stories that could have been written in the 50s. They've got that flavour of old school science fiction with big ideas and, and crazy technologies and that cool trick of turning the world just a little on its axis to investigate the weirder side of life. And just like those old pulp magazines, which were already engaging with their own crisis moment, the nuclear age, Brian's stories depict nightmare situations that are all too real, despite how grand and mad they may seem. So we managed to get this far without blowing ourselves back into the Stone Age with a stray nuke. I wonder if people reading science fiction and horror in the 50s would have thought that even possible. I also wonder if humanity will look back in another near century and think, whew, Close call with the sea levels. I hope so, but I'm also in the grip of a genuine terror that it's too late. Now, if I've bummed you out there, then I'm sorry. It's just really hard to talk about these things on such a day in an upbeat way. However, shaking it off, I do realise that you'll probably listen to this as a mild diversion from reality, and I'm, I'm not a complete grouch, so let's change the tone. The glassy burning floor of hell has all that retro social anxiety in place, but it also has all that retro fun and imaginative reach. I'm actually not sure how he took my comments about his work being enjoyable and accessible and old school. After all, he's an author who is very much on the literary side of things, and his reputation suggests that his books are weighty and worthy. And what I've read here certainly is, but it's also a good old time. And as I keep pointing out, Despite my apocalyptic sentiments thus far, fun is a massively underrated concept in contemporary fiction, and in horror in particular. You've only got to look at the books we discussed. Gene Wolfe's Book of the New Sun is the very epitome of classic science fiction, famously difficult and complex, but widely beloved. Jack Vance's Tales of the Dying Earth are close to being perfect sword and sorcery set in an apocalyptic landscape, They're so influential to the fantasy, horror, sci-fi blend of every other end of the world that came after. And the book I mentioned, A Canticle for Leibowitz, is fantastic old school sci-fi. It's full of ideas and thought experiments and questions to ponder. I'd massively recommend giving that a read, especially in our current culture, when science and tech are such potent issues. Canticle deconstructs all of our ideas about that. And Brian, at least, in this collection, is writing in that tradition. Grand ideas, incredible worlds, terrifying monsters, all packed into a few scant pages each. I still have no idea how representative this collection actually is of his work, but I'll be reading more of Brian's stuff in the future. I've stuck the link to the short story he mentioned in the show notes, the one called Solution, about people fleeing the planet and the Bezoses of this world. I've also linked to the wiki page for that human interference task force thing that I mentioned. The one about turning cats different colours and future warnings of how to avoid nuclear sludge. It's properly fascinating stuff. Do have a look at that. All of this said, I hope you're still listening at this point. I hope the ad in the episode didn't put you off. We all know the deal, right? I mean, running a podcast costs money and it demands time that could otherwise be spent making money. So I trust you're okay with the brief interlude. I think you are. You're all kind people. That said, I am happy to be partnered with Novelic. And and don't worry, this is, is not another ad. This is a genuine heads up now for something we can use. As I mentioned, Novelic allows users to set up private digital book clubs. It's the main reason I partner with them. Uh, as I'd love to offer you the chance to get in touch with me, with each other, maybe with even the authors on occasion. Going forward, I'll be setting up a dedicated Talking Scared book club for all Patreon subscribers. I'll be on there regularly to talk books or whatever else you may have in mind. Within reason, I am married. Um, We can do like an AMA through it. We can talk about future guests and we can pose questions for authors. 
I don't know. We're feeling our way through it. Let's see where it goes. The app download is free and I'll put details of how and when we can use it on Patreon. And speaking of Patreon, a shout out to both Acacia Ives, which is a phenomenal name, and to Dan Soul, a long-standing friend of the show and writer. Check out his stuff. He's, he churns out so many books and thank you, Dan, for supporting me. I'm running out of new ways to say that I'm grateful for your support, to be honest, but well, I'm extremely grateful for your support. Thank you so much. If you want to get involved in the book club, get extra episodes and all the other bonus stuff, you can sign up via patreon.com slash talkingscaredpod or use the link in the show notes. Otherwise, the same old social media stuff beckons. Meet me on Twitter at talkscaredpod, on Instagram at talkingscaredpod or email me direct at talkingscaredpod at gmail.com. Thanks to all of the people who emailed me with comments on my recent review of Stephen King's new novel, Billy Summers. It never stops being a thrill having your name in the weekend paper, and knowing that you guys read it actually does make me grin. Next week, excitingly, I'm back with a book that has immediately leapt into my top three of the year. That one, yeah, that one's a thriller. But until then, recycle, buy a bike, plant a tree, and start training for the water wars. Read good books, and remember, it's good to be scared.